the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. to be with you today. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 7. We've made our way in our study in the book of Romans to chapter 7. Romans is in the New Testament, which is the back part of your Bible. And uh, if you go to the, uh, the first of that New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see those red letters there as it really uh, kind of depicts the life of Christ and the teachings of Jesus. And then keep going to the right, you're going to find this book of Romans, which is actually a letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome. And we've made our way to chapter 7. Now, I need to remind you, because we come in here sometimes and we just kind of pick up, I want you to recognize that we're, we're, we're in the middle of a letter that Paul has written. So to really understand what he's saying, you kind of have to understand what he has already said as we have walked through this teaching together. Now, at this point in Paul's writing to the church, he recognizes that there are two groups of people within the church in Rome. There are people who have kind of grown up in Rome and have come from pagan backgrounds. Maybe many of them had, had, had worshipped Zeus and all of those gods that we hear about in that time. And some had come from no background at all, but they had come to hear the gospel message of Jesus and they had received Christ as their savior and they were part of that church. And so everything church was new to them. All of this teaching was brand new, but there were also in the church in Rome, people who had grown up in a Jewish environment. And, and so they were religious. They had been taught the commands of God and the commandments of God all their life. And so they had a religious background. And, and so Paul recognizes the distinction between these two groups. And throughout this book, he kind of bounces back and forth as he offers instructions to both. Now, at chapter 7, Paul is addressing his concern primarily to those who are of a Jewish background. Having grown up in Judaism, they were taught the importance of the law. They were taught to value the law, so much so that, um, that they almost made the law of God an idol. But boy, they were just so committed to the truth of the law. Now, that's not all a bad thing. The reason that, that we have the Word of God preserved for us today is because of the Jewish people's commitment to keep that Word of God. A scribe, just give you an example, when a scribe would translate or when he would transfer, write another passage of Scripture, let's just say that he has the book of Isaiah and it has to be handwritten. And when he makes another scroll with the book of Isaiah. They were so careful in copying to make sure that every letter was correct. They knew exactly how many characters were in the book of Isaiah. And they knew the middle character, what that character was. So when they're halfway through, they're scribing this new work. If they counted and got to that and realized it wasn't the one it was supposed to be, they knew they had made a mistake. 
And so they would back up and try to find that. And if they couldn't find it, they would, they would destroy the scroll and start over again. So they had a commitment to the word of God and, and were grateful for that. But the problem was they have a tendency to, to make the, the scriptures, well, more important than the one who gave it. So all of a sudden they were more interested in the scripture than they were the God who provided it for them. And so Paul recognized that one of the challenges was that they kind of became legalistic. Uh, they wanted to keep the law and the law had become something that in their mind would, would, would guarantee a place for them in heaven. If they kept the law, they would go to heaven. So Paul throughout his book of Romans is saying to them, guys, we are not saved by works. You're not saved, you don't become a Christian. You don't guarantee a place in heaven by going to church every week or by being baptized or by living a good life. There's not a divine set of scales. When you get to heaven, God's gonna put all the good stuff on one side and the bad stuff on the other. If the good outweighs the bad, you're going to heaven. And that legalistic mindset has made its way into our lives today too. There are still people that think, well, if I live good enough or if I do everything the Bible says do, then it's going to be okay. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You do not find salvation by keeping the law. You find salvation through the grace of God. God has chosen to forgive you. And now there's some abuse that that could bring about. And Paul addressed that earlier. But now he addresses this. The other end of the spectrum would be this. Paul anticipates that these Jewish believers might say, okay, Paul, if we're not saved by the law, and as we learned last week, we are dead to the law, and we need to be rescued in some way from the law, then what you're saying is the law's bad. The law is sin. And so Paul has to back up and say, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the law is bad. In fact, he's going to tell us in the passage we're going to read today that the law is good. He said, but when you misunderstand the purpose of the law, it becomes bad. And so Paul addresses that legalist attitude among so many people when he writes chapter 7. Now, what's really fun about chapter 7 is uh, chapter 7 is one of those chapters in the Bible that drives biblical scholars nuts. I mean, it just puts them over the edge. Because until chapter 7, uh, uh, all the way until chapter 7, for the first six chapters, Paul writes this letter, and he writes this letter in the third person. So until chapter 7, he writes and uses he, him, her, she, they, them. Every now and then he'll use first person, but it's always plural, us and we. But when he gets to chapter 7, he changes to first person singular. And he talks about I and me. There's a change in direction. And in fact, not only is there that change in direction, that's what drives biblical scholars nuts because they want to know why did he change? What is he trying to say? Who is he referring to? And they get it. I mean, they write, you know, they'll write papers on all kinds of things with regard to that. And not only that, in the text that we're going to read together, Paul's tense, he writes in the past tense. But when he gets to verse 14, 
he begins to write in the present tense. So there's some structural challenges in chapter seven that make chapter seven a real interesting chapter. Now we pick up where we left off last time we were together and we're in chapter seven. And if you have your Bible, turn with me as we pick up and we begin to read where we left off last time we were together. So let's look at verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? If we need to be delivered from the law, if we're dead to the law, well, does that mean the law is sin? So Paul kind of anticipates that might be our question. He said, so what, what are we to say then? Is law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I will not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a, cur uh, a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Did you get that? It does kind of get in the weeds a little bit. But let me try to explain it to you. I think what Paul is doing in the text before us, anticipating that those Jewish believers might well recognize that, okay, wait a minute. If the law, if we have to be rescued from the law, then law is the bad thing. And Paul says, no, no, it's the misuse of the law that is the problem. In fact, he's gonna say in verse 12, the law's good, the law is righteous. And if the law is good, I kind of like what, um, what Pastor um, Pat, let me say his last name, uh, Demarini, I think is the way you say his last name, but I love this quote that he offers of this text when he says this, the law is good because it shows me I'm not. That really is what Paul is saying. Let me tell you why the law is good because it shows me I'm not. The law's not good because it provides me an opportunity to be saved, that I can do what it says. No, the law was given to show that I'm not. Well, there are three things that I want you to notice with me as we walk through the text together today. 
First of all, as Paul kind of unpacks that to help, help us understand why the law is good, and he says it's good in verse 12, but in the first few verses that we read together between 7 and 12, he tells us why it's good. And he tells us, first of all, that the law is good because it reveals my sinfulness. Number one, he said, this is why the law is good, because it reveals my sinfulness. In verse 7 through 14, Paul uses the word sin nine times. In seven verses, he uses the word sin. But every time he uses the word sin, it is the singular form, not the plural form. So Paul is not talking about the sins that we commit. He is talking about something bigger than that. He is simply saying the law can reveal my sins. The law says thou shalt not kill. Well, if I kill, I have sinned. The law might reveal my sins, but the purpose of the law is not to reveal my sins. The purpose of the law is to reveal my sinfulness. It's to allow me to recognize that I am not just a sinner, or I don't just sin, but I am a sinner by nature. Now, to, to unpack that, Paul focuses on the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Now, you know, of the 10 commandments, when you look at the Ten Commandments, all of the others can be validated externally. I, I can demonstrate that I keep the law externally through my actions, all of the others. Thou shalt not kill. You can look at my life and determine I've not done that. You shall not commit adultery. That's something that happens that can be observed, that is visual. The only one of the Ten Commandments that is internal is that last one where it says thou shalt not covet. The word covet literally means desire. Thou shalt not desire or covet that which belongs to another person. And Paul, I think, picks this this commandment because perhaps it was this one that, that God used to allow him to recognize that sin has an internal component and it starts with a desire in me that every one of the commandments have an internal element to them and if I don't recognize that then I can say to myself I've kept all the commandments but, but isn't that what Jesus did when he comes along and he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, all of us have said, well, not only have I heard it said, I've not done that. I've kept that law. And then Jesus said, well, let me give you the internal component of that. If you've ever lusted after a woman, guess what? You've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, what was Jesus saying? He was saying that the end result of sin begins somewhere other than that end result. It begins in my heart with a desire. I see, I recognize, I want. I know that God says I am not to have it, but I want it anyway. And I act on my desire. And there is a sense in which that covenant, uh, that covetousness, that desire is a part of all of the rest of these. Jesus said, You've heard it said, you shall not kill. Well, I've never killed anybody, so I've kept that commandment. And he said, well, wait a minute. If you ever hated your brother, 
You are violating that commandment. Why? Because there's something deep inside that begins before that outward act ever happens. There is a hatred and a bitterness that wells up in me that somehow gains control over me that I lose control of that creates an action of murder. What he's ultimately saying is every one of the commandments that I break originates inside me. What Paul is saying is this, the commands of God reveal that I'm not just a, I don't just sin, the commands of God reveal that I'm a sinner. There's something deeper in me that is sin. The, the word covet that he uses here can be translated desire, and, and the word itself is neither negative or positive. You can use the word in a positive fashion or a negative. You have to look at the context to understand. And as we look at the context, of course, Paul is using it in a negative sense. So what he is saying is this, the law is not sin, but it exposes my sinful nature beneath that. There is beneath that those desires. And because the law reveals those dark desires in my heart, it's good. The law is good because it reveals to me and allows me to know that the, the law uncovers the root cause of my sin. It's a desire to be my own God. It, it reveals my individual sins, but more than that, it helps me see that I don't just sin, but that I am a sinner. Now, the second reason that Paul says that the law is good, he says, first of all, it's good because it reveals my sinfulness. It allows me to know that I'm a sinner. And, and I want to tell you something. You will never come to faith in Christ until you realize you are a sinner. The first step, every person in here who is a believer, all of us have a different testimony. We came to Christ maybe at a youth camp. We came to Christ maybe at a vacation Bible school. We came to Christ maybe at a revival. It might have been that another friend of yours shared the gospel with you and you came to Christ. And we might have come to Christ in a lot of different ways, but every one of us came and took the first step together, and it was always the same. We had to admit we were sinners separated from God. And so Paul said, guess what? The law's good because the law reveals that you've broken God's standard, which is perfection. It reveals that you're a sinner. But secondly, he says this, it reveals, and he's kind of like it, but he says, it reveals my self-centeredness. In verse eight, in one of those kind of a challenging verses here, he said, but sin Taking opportunity through the commandment produces in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is death. Now, what is he saying there? I think he's saying that sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment. You remember last week we discovered that the commandment, Paul says, the commandments, rather than reducing sin, the commandments actually can produce sin in my life. How is that? Well, it's because it reveals this rebellious streak that runs up the back of every one of us, right? Every one of us are rebellious at heart. When we see the sign that says, do not touch, everything in us 
wants to touch. If the sign wasn't there, I wouldn't even be tempted to touch it. But if you put a sign there that says, wet paint, do not touch, I, I want to take a closer look. And I'm going to begin to ask questions about it. Well, I, I know it looks wet, but it, I think they painted it yesterday. It's shiny, but it looks dry to me. And all of a sudden, we leave a fingerprint there. Why? If they had never put the sign there, we would have never touched it. There's something about the law that just brings us to the place of rebellion. You, you know what I'm saying? There is that streak of rebellion that runs down the back of every one of us. And every time I share this, I always remember this one event. And I know that some of you are going to say, well, you know, a poor pastor tells the same stories over and over again. But we have new people here that hadn't heard those stories, all right? So I can tell them over and over again because they hadn't heard them. But I remember one of the funniest things that ever happened. My wife and I were at a football game together in my hometown. And we were sitting up in the stands. And you know, in a football stadium, sometimes you're seated and your seats are at the same level as the stairs that go all the way up. And so we're seated and we're watching the football game and it's kind of gotten to be boring. It wasn't that exciting of a game. And there was a woman who comes in with a little toddler. I think he was about a two-year-old. And she had to go up and he didn't want to go. And he refused to go. And his whole attitude was, I'm not going. And she was just like, and she was struggling. She was, and she would grab him. And you, you've been there as a parent. You know, she would lift him up by the arm, lift him completely up, set him on the next step, take a step up, lift him and put him on the next step. And lift, and he would just go limp. You know, I'm not going. I'm, he just limp. She's grabbing him, picking him up, putting him on the next step. She is exhausted. It's a wonder they're going to make it. Finally, there's a gentleman sitting right down below us in front. And when she she got to him, she was out of breath, and he leaned over, and look, it was an older gentleman. I didn't have gray hair then, I do now, and, I've, I, and he taught me so much. <laughs> this gentleman with gray hair leaned over, and he said to her, would you like me to help you with that little boy? And she was just, oh, would you please? He said, I'd be happy to, but what he did next, none of us were prepared for. He grabbed that little boy, laid him over his lap, and he went, pow, now you get up those stairs. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the mom's standing there with her mouth open, everybody else standing with her mouth open, the little boy's on the top. <laughs> He's on the top step. I mean, dude, boom, he went to the top. There is a rebellious streak in every one of us. And the law points it out. Thou shalt not steal. Well, I'm not really sure it applies in this situation. Do you know a survey has discovered that large companies have to actually budget for theft among people who work for them. Why is that? Because we justify it. Well, they don't pay me enough. I give more to this company than they ever imagined. I do my fair share so, you know, I can just take this from the company and bring it home. And we justify our, and, and thou shalt not steal. Well, that's not really stealing. I mean, we, we, we cheat on our taxes. Well, that's not really cheating. I pay enough taxes anyway. And there are a lot of people that don't pay their fair share. And so this is, you know, it's going to be the law often reveals our own rebellion 
And so what Paul is saying is that it reveals my self-centeredness. Um, it shows, and that's what he means when he, when he says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment. The commandment is given and sin takes an opportunity because of that streak of rebellion. But it produces in me covetousness of every kind. And apart from the law, it's dead. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I think what Paul is saying there is simply this. If I had not known the law, I would have never known it was sin. The way I know it's a sin is because the law of God is given and I recognize it's wrong. I, I might not have ever seen myself as a sinner had it not been for the law. And I think what it reveals about our heart is that the law has a way of stirring up the rebel in me to do whatever I want to do. And so the commands, as he says in verse 13, the, the law makes our sin become sinful beyond measure. How does it do that? It shows the sinful nature of my heart. It reveals that I am a sinner to the very core of who I am. Paul said, guys, the law was not given for you to make up a bunch of rules to follow and and." and and please the heart of God. The law was given to show you that you're a sinner separated from God. And in fact, it brings us to the third thing. And the final thing that Paul tells us in this text is this. The law is good because it reveals to us that I need a Savior. In verse 9 through 11, I think Paul is writing about his own life here. Maybe before he met Christ. That's why he looks in the past. Because Paul before he really confronted the reality of, of the law, he thought he was doing pretty good. In fact, in the book of Philippians, a letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi, in chapter 3, verse 4, 5, and 6, listen to what Paul writes about himself. He said, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I, Paul said, far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to the righteousness, which is the law, I was found blameless. Man, I kept the law. I did exactly what the law required. But at some point, after his Damascus Road experience, when Paul, I think, was alone with the Lord in Arabia, and he's kind of gaining understanding of all that he had discovered. I think he went through the commandments in his mind, and he rediscovered that last commandment and recognized the connection between the internal part and to say, wait a minute, there is an inner part, not just what I do on the outside. There's something in me that is sinful, that would lead him to write later on in the book of Ephesians that I am dead in my trespasses and in my sin. Till then, he had been deceived thinking that the law was a means of salvation, that it was promising life. 
And if you would have asked Paul, are you going to heaven? He would have said, absolutely, I am. For the reasons that I just gave you there, he was circumcised the eighth day of a a Jew of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, one one of the greater of the tribes, a student of the law, a Pharisee. I'd memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. I lived out the law in every way. But it was the law that helped Paul recognize later how horribly he had violated God's standard of holiness, which is perfection. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Luke, and this past Wednesday night, we looked at a familiar passage of Scripture that a story that is recorded in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, that had the heading in your Bible, the rich young ruler. It's a story of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus and, and he knelt down before Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded in an interesting way. I mean, here's a guy asking the question we want everybody to ask, right? What do I do to inherit eternal life? But he said to him, we know that you're good and we know that you've come from God. So will you tell me how I can have eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you calling me good? There's only one good God. God's the only one's good. Almost sounds smart, Alec, doesn't it? Until you begin to think about it for a moment. What I think Jesus was saying is, no, I really want an answer. What? Why are you calling me good? Only God's good, and you're calling me good. Are you saying you believe I'm God? Are are you saying you believe I'm the Messiah? Is that what you're saying? I I think what Jesus is saying, you know what? This whole conversation has to begin with what do you think of me? It begins with what do you understand about me? Why are you calling me good? But knowing the man's heart, he goes one step further and says, Okay, how do you get to heaven? Well, have you kept the law? Keep the law. And the guy was excited to say, man, I've done that all my life. I've kept the law. And and you know the next question that comes to my mind, okay, if you've kept the law all your life, why don't you come to Jesus and ask him how I can have eternal life? Because there's something in your heart that has already told you that keeping the law doesn't do it. There's something about keeping the law that didn't satisfy. There's something about keeping the law that didn't give you a peace. There was something in you that's still longing to know that I know that I know and, and I don't. And that's, that really describes some of you that are here today. You're like that rich young ruler. You're like Saul in that moment. Some of us have become so blinded by our own self-righteousness and an attitude of self-righteousness is so entrenched in us that we cannot see ourselves as sinners. I'm not really a sinner. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. And yet God's law says there's a standard, and it's perfection. And you've blown it. And there's nothing you can do about it. And we stand helpless and hopeless apart from him. But what we cannot do ourselves, God did for us in the person of Jesus. He came and was born of a virgin. That's absolutely essential 
It's not just one of those little fun things we believe. It is absolutely essential to the gospel. Because if Jesus had an earthly father and an earthly mother, he would have been in the same boat we are. He would have been a sinner separated from God. But he was born different of a woman, but God was his father. So he was without sin. He didn't inherit a sinful nature. And he lived a sinless life. And the wages of sin is death. The reason you're going to die one day is because we are sinners. To the core, we are sinners. And we're going to die because the wages of sin is death. Jesus would have never died. He would have lived forever. He even said on one occasion, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. When he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the Bible said, and he breathed out his last. He embraced death on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sin. So that when you stand before God and he says, you've got to be perfect to get into heaven, and we say, I'm not, then why should I let you in? Well, you shouldn't. But I put my faith and trust in Jesus who met the standard. And God says, oh, if you accepted my son as your savior, then I'm going to declare his death your death. You died when he died. The penalty for your sin has been paid. And when he was raised, you raised with new life. And today, though we all stand before God's law condemned and guilty, the law's good because it shows us we're guilty. And that opens the door for us to say, Lord, save me. Forgive me. Give me the eternal life that you offer. I give you my life. And I accept yours. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. And I know that there are many that are here today that have been caught in the, in the um, treadmill of performance. They're like that greyhound chasing the mechanical rabbit. They'll never catch it. They're trying to do everything they know to do to go to heaven. They've been baptized. They want to live a good life. They try to take care of people. You have told us clearly in your standard that perfection is the way, and we've missed it. But you've also said in your word you'd love us. And what we couldn't do, you've done for us in Jesus, and through faith in him, we could have eternal life. And today, for any that are listening, if they've never made that decision, I pray that today would be the day that they would ask you to forgive them of their sin. They would turn from their sin and repentance to receive the gift of eternal life you offer. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. 
click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.